0: this morning we're going to be looking at one of those more difficult passages. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. So far in our Psalms of the Spirit series, we've looked at wisdom psalms and royal psalms. we looked at psalms of joy and psalms of lament. Psalms of questioning and psalms of confidence. Today, we come to what is called an imprecatory psalm. What that means is that this is a psalm inspired by the Spirit of God that guides us in praying for God's judgment on wickedness. And a imprecatory psalm is a psalm that guides us in praying for God's judgment on wickedness. And before we read it, you, you might be wondering why we've chosen to spend our time here when there are so many seemingly clearer and frankly more encouraging psalms to choose from. Though we'll see about that. There are two reasons why we felt led to Psalm 58. Well, first, we just don't ever want to shy away from preaching the difficult parts of Scripture. We don't don't want to get to something that looks hard to understand and skip over it. We don't want to be a church that skips the hard chapters. We want to work hard to understand the truth that God's chosen to reveal to us, and Psalm 58 is included in that. That's the first reason, but here's the second We chose Psalm 58 because we actually need to learn to pray imprecatory prayers. We need to learn to pray imprecatory prayers. There are some who argue that imprecatory prayers were an Old Testament phenomenon, and this side of the cross we are called to a higher level of prayer, that Christians ought never to pray for judgment. But this morning what I hope to show you is that imprecatory prayer is essential for followers of Christ. Imprecatory prayer is essential for followers of Christ, and that's because imprecatory prayer does what all Scripture does. It helps us to know Christ in His fullness. It molds us into Christ's likeness. It moves us to hope in Christ's promise. And so it's essential not only that we understand Psalm 58, but it's essential that we learn to pray it for ourselves. And so with that goal in mind, let's listen together to this Psalm of the Spirit, Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers, or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth." So as we think about this psalm this morning, we're going to zoom out, zoom in, and then zoom out again. We're going to start by zooming out and looking at the context of imprecatory prayer, and then we'll zoom in and we'll look at the pattern. And then finally, we'll zoom out and we'll look at the purposes of imprecatory prayer. So first, the context of imprecatory prayer, the context of Psalm 58. You know, when it comes to the music that we listen to, we live in the day and age of singles and Spotify and the shuffle button. We live in a time where we ask our device to play a song for us, and then once that song is done, the device will choose other songs for us that it thinks we will enjoy. Often the songs bounce from one artist to another, and the only connection between them is that they come from a similar genre. But it was not always like this. We used to listen to records, we used to listen to albums. We listened from track one to track 11 or so as our favorite musicians told a story through the arrangement of the songs that they had written. So I think that we often come to the psalms like they're just a bunch of singles that are on shuffle. But in actuality, they're more like a record. They're more like an album. I've been working our way through different psalms this summer. One thing we've discovered is that the psalms are not just a random collection of isolated songs, but they, they are arranged carefully. They don't stand alone from each other, they're arranged and they tell a story. And different groups of psalms tell smaller stories within the story of the psalms. And what this means is that just like we do with all of scripture, we should read the psalms in their context. What comes before? What comes after? And this context is especially important as we come to Psalm 58. This psalm is part of a collection of psalms that starts in Psalm 50. And as you work your way through these psalms leading up to Psalm 58... There's some fundamental truths that ground us as we come to imprecatory prayer. And so a few lessons that I want to bring out from the context of these psalms before we look at Psalm 58 today. First, these psalms teach us that we are all sinners who deserve God's judgment. We've all sinned and deserve God's judgment. Psalm 50 begins this whole section and it is a rebuke from God to his sinful people. Psalm 53 also tells us there is none who does good, no, not one, and so the context of Psalm 58 reminds us that left to ourselves, we all belong in the category of the wicked. Left to ourselves, we all have sinned and deserve God's judgment, and yet there is hope for the wicked in these psalms, because after Psalm 50 comes Psalm 51. You probably know that this is a prayer of repentance from King David where he confesses his sins to the Lord. He prays for God's forgiveness. This psalm teaches us that God forgives the sin of those who repent. God forgives the repentant. We don't need to earn our way back to God through good works. We couldn't do that if we tried. Instead, when we hear God's rebuke for our sin, if we repent, we can be forgiven These first two foundations, our sin, God's forgiveness, helps us to understand what we are reading when we read categories of the righteous and the wicked in the Psalms. You see, in Psalm 52, David says that the righteous will laugh at the downfall of the wicked, but we need to read that in its context right after Psalm 51. The righteous are not those who have never sinned. The righteous are those who have repented and been forgiven. Likewise, the wicked are not simply those who have sinned, because we've all sinned, More specifically, the wicked are those who have refused to repent of their sins. This is the third foundational truth. God's forgiven people are the righteous. The repentant are the righteous. And then in Psalms 54 through 57, we we come to some familiar territory. The righteous suffer in this world. The righteous suffer at the hands of the wicked. In Psalms 54 through 57, David is running from King Saul David is betrayed by close friends. David is seized by the Philistines. And in all this, he's looking to God for deliverance. Those who have repented of their sins and been forgiven by God are not given an easy and safe life. In this world, the righteous experience unjust suffering from the wicked. And here's why all of that is so important for understanding Psalm 58, because it shows us that imprecatory prayers are not the prayers of self-righteous people who believe that others deserve judgment. That's not what we're reading this morning. No, imprecatory prayers are the prayers of repentant people who are suffering from injustice. They're the prayers of repentant people who are suffering from injustice. These are the prayers of those who know what their sins deserve, who've experienced God's forgiveness, and yet who are suffering injustice from those who refuse to repent. And what this means is that imprecatory prayers are for followers of Christ, too. We know that our sins deserve the judgment of God. We understand that the wages of sin is death, that God would be just to pour out his wrath on us, and yet, by God's grace... We've repented of our sins. We've received his forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death on the cross. We've been saved from the judgment that we deserve. And yet, we still live in the midst of a world of wickedness. And there will be times when we suffer at the hands of the wicked. It's for these times that we need to learn how to pray imprecatory prayers. And so to do that now, let's zoom in on Psalm 58 and see the pattern of imprecatory prayer. The pattern of imprecatory prayer. I want to say at the outset that an imprecatory prayer is not the same thing as unhinged venting of our anger to God. In imprecatory prayer, God meets us in our anger. He gives words to us. He gives us a path of prayer to follow toward hope. That's what we see in the pattern of David's prayer in Psalm 58. The first thing we see is that imprecatory prayer starts with expressing our indignation. Expressing our indignation. Indignation is righteous anger. To be indignant is to be provoked by wrongdoing. And in Psalm 58, David is indignant at those who have been given authority to rule and to judge. He asks the rhetorical question of verse 1, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? He's speaking to the rulers of the land. He calls them gods because this is the posture from which they rule. Instead of ruling as those under God like they should, they rule as if they are gods. And here's David's question to them. Are you ruling in righteousness? Are your judgments just? The way he asks the question implies that they say it's just. They say it's righteous. He says, do you indeed rule justly and righteously? And he answers his own question with a resounding no in verse 2. No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. They do not rule in righteousness. They do not make just judgments. They do just the opposite. Notice the movement from their hearts to their hands in what David says. In their hearts they scheme to do what is wrong. With their hands they create violence. The ones who should be seeking to do what is right... And restraining violence are actually plotting evil and increasing wickedness in the earth. This should sound familiar to us, church. In 2019, the state of New York signed into law the Reproductive Health Act. This law made it legal for a woman in the state of New York to have an abortion through the third trimester of pregnancy. And when it was passed, New York City lit up one of its most prominent skyscrapers in pink, to celebrate its passage. The rulers devised in their hearts and then decreed with their hands the murder of children in the womb and then celebrated it as if it were good and righteous. Beyond abortion, we could talk about our country's legalization of same-sex marriage or the transgender legislation that's being promoted to allow for the mutilation of minors who express a confused and broken desire to transition. These things are happening and are legislated and are celebrated by our rulers. Psalm 58 gives us words to express our indignation. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs, with your hands you deal out violence on the earth. David moves from expressing his indignation at the injustice of rulers to expressing his indignation at the incurable nature of wickedness. In verses 3 through 5, he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. So as David thinks about the wicked, he recognizes that their wickedness is innate to who they are. You know, we might be led to believe with all these cute babies in the room with us today that they're just innocent little cherubs. But you know what David says? He says they're snakes. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, they're snakes. He speak, they speak lies from birth. They seek to harm others with their venomous bite, and there's nothing that anyone can do to stop them. And yet, it's not only that the wicked are born this way, the wicked want to be this way. David describes them with this odd image of a deaf adder that stops its ear. Well, snakes don't really have ears and they don't have hands to stop them either. But what is David trying to say? Their deafness points to their inability to hear. But their stopping of the ears points to the fact that they don't want to hear. Their wickedness is innate, but their wickedness is also voluntary. And this is what gives David so much indignation. When someone harms you, when someone hurts you, when someone sins against you or persecutes you, two things are true. That person was born in sin, and that person loves sin. That person cannot turn away from wickedness, and that person does not want to turn away from wickedness. It would be a little easier for us if only the first were true. In that case, we could view them just as victims of their sin natures, but both are true. They are not helpless victims. They are willing participants who love their wickedness. They wouldn't have it any other way. And as those who suffer at their hands, we are rightly indignant. In this first section of Psalm 58, God calls us to express that indignation to him. He calls us to give words to our righteous anger in his presence. And then he guides us into the second stage of imprecatory prayer, praying for intervention. We express our indignation, then we pray for intervention. In verse 6, we see a turn in the psalm as David directs his prayer to God for the first time. He says, O God, O Lord. David is now moving from expressing his indignation to asking for God's intervention. And this God is not a generic God. This is the Lord God. This is the Creator God who made a covenant with his people to be their God. This is the all powerful God who's promised to exercise that power on behalf of his people. As we saw last week in Psalm 46, this is the Lord of Hosts and the God of Jacob. In verses six through nine, David looks to God the Lord, his God. He looks to him by faith and he seeks his intervention. As we look at the things David asks for, we see that he uses seven images as he asks God to intervene on behalf of the righteous. Some of these images are familiar, and easy to swallow. Others are difficult and make us uncomfortable. What I hope we can see this morning is that this imagery is not coming from a place of personal vindictiveness. It's coming from a place of desperate urgency. These images aren't expressions of hatred. They are petitions for God's help. They're not focused on the suffering of the wicked. They're focused on the deliverance of the righteous. Let's look at these one by one. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. The image here is of God coming and delivering a knockout punch on the wicked. Imagine a big kid bullying someone's little brother, but what that kid doesn't know is that the one he's bullying has a big brother that's bigger than he is. And just like a big brother might come to his little brother's defense and deliver a knockout punch, so David's asking God, come to our defense as we suffer at the hands of the wicked. You are bigger than they are. You are stronger than they are. Come to our defense. Break the teeth in their mouths. And he says, tear out the fanes of the young lions, O Lord. Now none of us need to be told how dangerous a lion can be, especially when they're hungry. This is what the wicked are like, a strong young lion looking for something to eat. Like Satan himself, they prey on the righteous and seek to devour them. And David's prayer to God is that he would defame them. That he would remove their ability to harm the righteous. That he would remove the danger from his people. Turn the wicked into toothless lions, O Lord. He says, let them vanish like water that runs away. Imagine with me that you have a bucket full of water and you take that bucket outside and you pour it on the ground. Will that ground stay wet forever? No, it will... Disappear into the ground fairly quickly. Well, that's what David asked God to do with the wicked. Make them disappear. Make them go away. Remove them from this world. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. If this was written today, he might have said, when he shoots his gun, let it be filled with rubber bullets. Right? David prays that God would make the weapons of the wicked absolutely ineffective. He's asking God to thwart their intentions to do evil. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. So it's a little harder to understand, but David's already likened the wicked to venomous serpents and hungry lions. Well, here he asks God to make them into just the opposite of those dangerous predators, a slowly dissolving snail. Snails are small and slow and they melt away and David asked God to make the wicked like that. He's praying that God would so intervene that the wicked would just pose no threat to the righteous anymore. And then he says, let them be like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. That's undoubtedly the most difficult image that David uses. It makes us uncomfortable because we understand the painful reality of parents who go through something like this. What I hope you can see is that the way David uses this image isn't meant to minimize that pain at all. Here's what I think is in David's mind. The wicked live in this world with power and influence, and they use it to harm and hurt people. What David is saying is essentially this. Make it as if they never had a chance to do all of this evil. Make it as if they never had the opportunity to inflict suffering on the righteous, He's saying something very similar to what all these images are saying, which is, God intervene by removing the influence of the wicked. Intervene by taking them away. Intervene by stopping their threats. And then he uses one final image to give a sense of urgency to the rest of them. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Now, as far as the image goes, I can confidently admit to you, along with my footnote in my Bible, which says, the meaning of the verse is uncertain. (laughs) So we don't really know what the image means, but we can see a little bit of what he's getting at, right? Because whatever it is he's describing, however long it generally takes, David's point is clear enough, may he sweep them away sooner than that happens. He not only wants the Lord to remove the influence of the wicked, he wants him to do it quickly. He wants him to do it soon, And church, we can and should pray this way when we consider the evil impact of the wicked in this world. We should look to God for intervention. O God, break the teeth of those who persecute your people. Tear out the fangs of the young lions who prey on the innocent. Let the corrupt leaders of this world vanish like water that runs away. Let the sharp arrows of those who seek to harm vulnerable children in the womb be blunted. Let those who are an active danger to others become insignificant. As for those who use their power and influence to promote wickedness, make it as if they had never been born. And do it quickly, Lord. Do it soon. Intervene on behalf of your people. Sweep away wickedness from the earth. In a precatory prayer, we express our indignation, then we pray For intervention. And then once we make our requests known to God, the third movement in Pregatory Prayer is that we hope in future judgment. We hope in future judgment. David's prayer began with a focus on today's injustice, it ends with a focus on future justice. It begins with an eye on the influence of the wicked, it ends with an eye on the defeat of the wicked. It begins in the context of the righteous suffering. It ends with the reward of the righteous. It begins with pretend gods. It ends with the true God. As David puts his hope in future judgment, he reflects first on the future joy of the righteous. Now verse 10 is another one that immediately makes us uncomfortable, difficult to take in. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. This verse does not sit well with our modern sensibilities. But when that happens, and it does happen in Scripture, we need to acknowledge two things. First, we might not understand it. And second, our modern sensibilities are not always spot on. Right? And so let's try to understand this, and then let's try to adjust our hearts to what God has said. We need to notice first that this verse does not say the righteous will take vengeance and rejoice. That's very different, isn't it? No, the righteous will see the vengeance and rejoice. Right now, the righteous are waiting on and looking for God's vengeance on the wicked. David says that one day it will come, and when it finally does, when God finally intervenes and brings his judgment on the wicked, that's when the righteous will rejoice. But make no mistake, church, the the judgment of the wicked will be a joy to the righteous. The judgment of the wicked will be a joy to the righteous. To help us envision what that day will be like, David uses an image that, again, makes us squirm in our seats today a little bit. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. There's no getting around the fact that this is a rather graphic picture, but let's make sure that we understand the image before we shrink back from it. I grew up not very far from the Civil War battlefield of Antietam in Maryland, and Though it's not as famous as Gettysburg, the Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest day in the Civil War. So many soldiers died that day that it's been said that the fields they fought in were covered in red. That's how Antietam's remembered today. Well, what will it be like then, when all the wicked from all time make a unified assault against the righteous and are struck down by the Lord? The righteous Bade their feet in the blood of the wicked as a result of God taking vengeance on the countless multitudes of wicked people who were actively attacking the righteous. This is an image of a seemingly insurmountable assault by the wicked turned into an absolutely decisive victory over wickedness by God himself. Right now the righteous are under attack, but in a moment God will bring a complete and total victory. The battle will be over And his people will rejoice. Not only will the righteous rejoice in God on that day, but all of humanity will acknowledge God on that day. Look at verse 11. Mankind will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on earth. I want to point out here that verse 11 precludes the idea that verse 10 is a literal description. If verse 10 were literal, then how could mankind acknowledge anything in verse 11? No, verse 10 is a poetic depiction of final judgment. Verse 11 is the literal result of final judgment. When God's judgment does come on the wicked, on that day, all mankind will acknowledge two realities. First, they'll acknowledge that the righteous were on the right side of history all along. They'll acknowledge that the righteous were on the right side of history all along. You know, we're warned all the time that we need to be on the right side of history. What the wicked mean by that is that we need to evolve in our views. We need to leave biblical views behind in favor of cultural values. And if we don't do that, history will remember us as hateful and backwards and bigoted. But church, when the judgment comes, everything will change. The wicked will acknowledge that biblical righteousness brings eternal reward. Mankind will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. And that reward, church, is nothing less than eternal communion with God himself. The God in whose presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. When judgment comes, mankind will acknowledge the reward of the righteous. And mankind will also acknowledge that God is the judge after all. God is the judge after all. Today, if we proclaim to the world... You did not evolve, you were created. Your life is not your own, you're accountable. You have sinned and you face wrath. If we proclaim those things today, mankind laughs at us. But when the judgment comes, mankind will acknowledge that their theories of natural selection and evolution and my body, my choice and personal autonomy and culturally defined morality, on that day they will all say, surely there's a God who judges on earth. They'll acknowledge that God is the judge after all. David ends his imprecatory prayer by envisioning this day of judgment, by envisioning the rejoicing of the righteous and the acknowledgement of the wicked. And he puts his hope in this day as God's final answer to his indignation and his prayer for intervention. And through the pattern God has given to us by the Spirit, God teaches us to do the same. Now we've seen the context of imprecatory prayer this morning, we've seen the pattern of imprecatory prayer, but the question still remains, why is it essential that we learn to pray this way? Why is it essential that we learn to pray this way? And and to answer that, I wanna zoom out one more time this morning and consider the purposes of imprecatory prayer. Why must we learn to pray this way? I wanna give you four purposes this morning. First, imprecatory prayer redirects our righteous indignation to God. It redirects our righteous indignation to God. While we are all familiar with sinful anger, we also need to acknowledge that in a world of wickedness, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Righteous anger is appropriate when rulers legislate laws that destroy children. Righteous anger is appropriate when pastors secretly prey on weak members of their churches. Righteous anger is appropriate when someone betrays your trust and confidence. The key question is this. How do we heed Paul's instruction in Ephesians 4? Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Because even in our righteous indignation, left to ourselves, we end up sinning. Righteous anger often leads us to take sinful actions. Think about the story of Tamar. Because of what Amnon did to his sister, And because David didn't do anything about it, Absalom, in his righteous indignation, did what? He murdered Amnon and revolted against David. Surely there was righteous indignation on Absalom's part. But look what it led to. This is what righteous indignation can do in the hearts of sinners. It leads us to sin But through imprecatory prayer, God teaches us to redirect that righteous indignation to him. He doesn't call us to suppress it. He doesn't call us to act on it. He calls us to express it to the one who has ultimate authority to do something about it. And so this morning, if wickedness has brought anger into your heart, don't act on it. Don't suppress it. Redirect it to the Lord. Second purpose Imprecatory prayer reminds us that vengeance belongs to God. It reminds us that vengeance belongs to God. When we behold wickedness, and especially when we or someone we love is harmed by wickedness, what we want is to take vengeance. What we want is to punish that ourselves. We want to repay evil for evil. But in both the Old and the New Testaments, God says this to us, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Well, why is that? Why does vengeance belong to God? Well, it reminds us that sin is ultimately against God more than anybody else. Horizontal wickedness reveals vertical rebellion. Sin between people reveals rebellion against God. After Israel rejected the prophet Samuel's counsel, God told Samuel, It's not you they've rejected, but me. If you've been sinned against, remember that this morning. Whatever wickedness has been done against you, God is the ultimate one who's been sinned against, and therefore vengeance belongs to God. Embrace the pattern of imprecatory prayer and pray that God will intervene for his name's sake, for his glory. Remember that vengeance belongs to God. The third purpose of imprecatory prayer is that it reorients us to the hope of Christ's return. It reorients us to hope in Christ's return. Did you know that imprecatory prayers are not only found in the Old Testament? Every time we pray, come Lord Jesus, we're praying for God's judgment on the wicked. Now you might argue that's not what you mean when you pray that. But I'd argue that that's what you're supposed to mean when you pray that. I'd argue that at least part of what the early church meant when they prayed that was, Bring your judgment, O oh God. Listen to these verses from Second Thessalonians that describe the return of Christ. Paul is writing to a suffering, persecuted church. And he says that their faith is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, Come, Lord Jesus. Whenever we pray, come, Lord Jesus, we are praying in part for Christ's judgment on the wicked. And further, when he comes, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Listen to the rejoicing of heaven in the judgment of the wicked in Revelation 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. New Testament rejoicing in judgment. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. In the New Testament, just as in the Old. Let's press into that for a moment. Why does God's judgment on the wicked bring the righteous joy? Well, clearly at one level, it's because their judgment means our deliverance. Just as Israel rejoiced when God delivered them from Egypt by judging the Egyptians... So the righteous will rejoice when God delivers us through judging the wicked. But I think there's an even deeper level to this because of who the righteous are. Who are the righteous? Well, the righteous are those who love God. The righteous are those who love his glory. The righteous are those who delight in the glory of God. Have you ever been offended when someone that you... Uh, like to listen to or an athlete you like to watch some, someone says they're not that good and you've, you've felt like yes they are right and and then and then once they they go and they they do their thing you're, you're vindicated right like I told you so well we love the glory of God and wickedness robs glory from God and so our joy comes when God is vindicated our joy comes when God's glory is made much of again our joy in judgment will be the joy of God's glory filling the earth as the Waters cover the sea. That's what our hearts are longing for, the day when God's glory is no longer squandered and no longer stolen, no longer made little of anymore. And precatory prayer reorients us to hope for that day as we pray, come Lord Jesus, we want to marvel at your glory. Now with all of that said this morning, I have not addressed the most obvious question that you could ask. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray for our enemies? Yes, he did. He did. Well, how then can you possibly say that followers of Jesus should pray imprecatory prayers? How can we pray for God's judgment if Jesus taught us to love our enemies and to pray for them? Well, this brings us to the final purpose of imprecatory prayer. It releases us to love our enemies. It frees us to love our enemies our enemies. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12 verses 19 through 21. Romans 12 19 through 21 and listen to Paul's instructions for followers of Christ who are mistreated. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The instruction is very clear. Don't avenge yourselves, love your enemies. Don't avenge yourselves, love your enemies. What we need to see this is the foundational, controlling belief that enables us to carry out that instruction. Now we might expect Paul to say something like this, because God loved you when you were enemies, you also must love your enemies. And that is so true, and that is so good, that is so right, but it's not the only truth. Paul actually says, because God will judge your enemies, you're free to love your enemies. Because you know that his wrath will come in the future, you can bless them in the present. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Leave it to the wrath of God and bless them today. And we see here that there's no conflict between Old Testament and Precatory Prayer and the instructions of the New Testament to love and bless and pray for our enemies. As we express our righteous indignation to God, pray for his intervention, hope in his return, we are freed to love our enemies the way God has loved us. And in fact, this is the example that Jesus himself set for us. We understand that on the cross, Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for his enemies. We remember that on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But underneath his loving sacrifice and his gracious prayers, 1 Peter 2 tells us this. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So as Jesus was mocked and reviled and beaten and crucified, he was able to choose sacrificial love over personal retaliation because he trusted that there is a God who judges on the earth. And then, trusting that God is the one who will bring his judgment, he took the judgment of God that we deserve so that wicked sinners like us can be saved from that judgment if we repent and trust in him. This morning, if you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Jesus for salvation, we urge you to believe today there really is a day of judgment coming. There really is a God who judges on earth. Left to yourself, one day God will intervene in this world and you will face his righteous wrath forever and ever. But God has sent his son to bear that judgment for all who trust in him. And today he extends his forgiveness to you. Confess your sins to him. Call out to Jesus as your savior and you can enter into the reward of the righteous. We urge you to trust in Jesus today. And Redeemer family, I urge you this morning, don't skip over Psalm 58 in your prayer life. Don't ignore imprecatory prayer. If we hope to live out of love for this world, then we need to be able to express our righteous indignation over the wickedness in this world. If we're gonna bless those who harm us, we need a place where we pray to God to intervene on our behalf. If we're gonna persevere in gospel proclamation through persecution, then we need to reorient ourselves to the hope of future judgment. So for all of this, the Spirit has given us this song. The Spirit has given us Psalm 58 that we might learn to trust the God who will judge the earth and reward the righteous. Father, we come to you and we pray that you would help us to learn to pray this prayer from the heart by faith with the full awareness that we too deserve judgment with complete thanksgiving that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be saved from it. And yet with the hope that one day you'll deliver us from all the wickedness in this world and you will receive all the glory. So Lord, teach us to pray and then help us, having prayed these prayers that you give us, to love our enemies, to bless them, to bring the gospel to them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.